Hello and welcome to Based on a True Story. On today's episode, we're going to learn more about the movie Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. The story of Robin Hood is one that's been in a number of different films over the years, but there are almost always some common threads that tie them together. The idea of a heroic outlaw character who steals from the rich and gives to the poor. To help us take a historical look at the legend of Robin Hood, I'm excited to be joined by historian Dr. Sean McGlynn. His book is called Robin Hood, A True Legend, and it takes a very historical look at the legendary outlaw. Before we get Sean on the line, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. Here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, Robin Hood's hideout was not anything like what we see in the movie. Number two, the legends of Robin Hood were more brutal than a lot of the movie adaptations. Number three, we know who the real person was who inspired Robin Hood. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to get Sean on the line to chat about the history behind the movie Robin Hood. Prince of Thieves. Before we dive into some details about the legend of Robin Hood, from an overall perspective of the movie, what did you think about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? I thought it was an entertaining film. I've seen it two or three times now. Um, it's a good Hollywood adventure. As an historian, I tend to have a day off work when I watch films like this, apart from for this podcast, of course. Uh, I just try and enjoy the films for what they are. So I'm not looking like people, historians do at Braveheart or El Cid to find, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, that this is wrong. I just watch the film to enjoy. If it were a documentary, then it would be a different, different thing. But as an adventure Hollywood film, I think it was enjoyable. That's a great perspective to take from them. I kind of take a day off and just enjoy it for entertainment. Yes, yeah, I'm, I'm off the clock when I'm watching my history films. Very good. Well, let's put you back on the clock here because I do want to dive into some of the details. <laughs> I'd like to start with the idea of Robin of Loxley abandoning his honest ways to become an outlaw. And I'll kind of set up the context the way the movie explains it. Uh-huh. That happens in the movie. Robin returns home from being imprisoned and Guy of Gidsman's soldiers chase down a young boy for killing one of Prince John's deer. Basically, we get the idea that hunting is illegal and they're willing to kill a young boy for hunting a deer. And then Robin returns to Loxley Castle with Morgan Freeman's character, Azim, and he finds that it's burned and his family's hung after his father is charged for devil worship. Their servant kind of explains all this, Duncan, and he says that it was done by Guy of Gisborne and the sheriff of Nottingham after they took all of Loxley's land. So that was kind of how the movie explains why Loxley turned from his honest ways and, and kind of went into becoming an outlaw. Do we know if any of that <laughs> was accurate? Um, none of it, really, to be honest. <laughs> the thing about Robin Hood, we're dealing with a, a mythical legendary figure who, as I'll explain later, I think is based on a real-life character. But all these interpretations and versions of Robin, especially like the Loxley one, 
they came centuries after the Robin Hood legend took root in medieval England. So the Loxley legend comes from four centuries afterwards, which is an enormous amount of time. And basically, by this stage, all Robin Hood and the Merry Men are, are stock characters which writers can use for their creative output. So the Loxley story um, and the, no the nobility uh, owning the land and everything is entirely fictitious and made up nearly half a millennium later. It's much more likely that Robin Hood, if he existed as such, was going to be a career professional thief. So the Loxley story is entirely fabricated. It's, it's just based on conjecture uh, and no hard facts whatsoever. Was Loxley a real place, though, that they based it on, or was that just all completely fictional? Uh, yes, there's a Loxley in Yorkshire, but there's also a Loxley in Warwickshire, uh, two different counties. So we can't even identify the place. And that's something we'll probably come back to later, you know, problems about Sherwood Forest as well as, as a setting. So, yes, it's a place, but that's, that's all they have, really. So some um, playwright in the, around 1600 says, you know, this is about the Earl of Huntington or Robin of Loxley, and that becomes popular because they're written for a popular audience. And with the printing press and, and the rest of it, these become then established in the readership and in plays. And that's what filmmakers turn to for the most part. So the Loxley story is, as I say, a fictional creation entirely. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, -N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That will kind of segue into another major thing that we're all familiar with as far as Robin Hood is concerned. And again, the movie explains this part of it where basically he's stealing from the rich and giving to the poor. In this version of the legend, we see Robin and Azim, of course, they're trying to cross a river in Sherwood Forest and they get stopped by a band of outlaws. Uh, some of these names we're familiar with uh, from the legend of Robin Hood, Will Scarlet, 
much uh, Little John or John Little. We kind of get both versions of that there. And then we see Robin Hood, Kevin Cosner's version of Robin Hood joins their band of outlaws and he says something to the effect of, uh, I think it was like, a man defending his home is better than 10 hired soldiers. But then soon after this is when we start to see what we're all familiar with. Robin Hood stealing from rich folks passing through Sherwood Forest and giving them to the poor villagers who then start praising the name of Robin Hood. How about that part of the Robin Hood legend? Was there any reality to Robin Hood stealing from the rich and giving to the poor like we see in the movie? There is, actually. In the very early stories, and if we go to the earliest ballad tales that survive about Robin Hood, which stem from about 1450 and thereafter, there's very little in it, but the very last line of the big ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood, the very last line says, and he did poor men much good. And that's all we have for that stage, and that's the earliest reference to it. But in 1521, a Scottish chronicler called John Major talks about a Robin Hood and little John who robbed the rich to help the poor. So by 1521, it's actually written about in a chronicle as if it's fact. The first reference to it in 1450 is in a ballad, you know, a fictional artistic creation. Um, and there's just a brief, that brief reference to it. So there is an element to it. But when you think about it, if you are an outlaw, you might want to buy the goodwill and the allegiance of the local population to keep them silent and so they don't inform on you, um, say, where you're hiding out to the authorities. And it is interesting how many criminals, even Escobar and others in recent times, are known as Robin Hoods in their area. And they have all these financial schemes to help the poor and people around them. So it, it makes sense, as well as having some slim element of fact to it. That does make sense. I hadn't thought about it that way of just it's in the movie and in Robin Hood legend kind of overall, I've always got the impression that he's doing it because he's he's a good guy. Right. Even though he's an outlaw, he's always cast as the good guy. And so he's he's given to the poor because even I guess Robin of Loxley was anything but poor. But we kind of get the sense that he's a man of the people and, and that aspect. But I hadn't thought about that. It makes sense from an outlaw's perspective to have somebody on your side <laughs> the people it's not gonna be the law <laughs> absolutely so if they if they share in your profits uh, your robbery um then they have reason to to keep quiet about these things as i say the, in the film robin is a noble who then falls on hard times because his lands are taken but the original robin hood from the surviving earliest material is a middle class hero he's one of the yeomanry classes and there's discussions, quite convincing suggestions that he was designed to be a middle-class hero for merchants and artisans and the like, who were rather fed up with knights and the nobility getting all the glory in the chivalric literature, you know, the knight in shining armor, armor on his horse and rescuing the damsel. A lot of those chivalric elements are placed earlier, or lower down the social scale, into the middle classes. So the yeoman with his bow makes sense from that perspective as well. So he's a, a middle-class outlaw, if you'd like. He might be considered a white-collar criminal today, perhaps. Well, I'm curious about kind of the other side of this story now, because rather than from Robin Hood's perspective, at least as far as the movie is concerned, we start to very quickly get the sense that the bad guys are those in charge. I mentioned them earlier, especially Guy Gisborne and the Sheriff of Nottingham. 
And we see this war kind of start to get personal between the two, especially between the sheriff and Robin Hood. And I know we're talking about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves today, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention another big part of this plot that we see in a lot of Robin Hood movies, and that is Prince John himself, who in a lot of those other versions of the story, we get the sense he's doing this in an attempt to overthrow King Richard. Is always off at the Crusades. You know, he's never there. He's always off during these stories. Yes, Jackson T. King. Yeah, exactly. And I know in Prince of Thieves, Prince John isn't actually in there, but there is a brief mention where we kind of get the same idea that King Richard is away and he does show up at the end of the movie. But So we know that he's away and we get the idea that they're following a similar storyline. Can you explain that side of it? Was King Richard really away from England and was there an, essentially an attempt to kind of take over his throne? Or how was this between Robin Hood and the Sheriff of Nottingham and Prince John and all of these different storylines that we see, what was going on there? Well, so the film was set in 1194. So at that time, it's got its facts basically right. Uh, Richard has been away on crusade and he's been imprisoned on his way back when he's shipwrecked. And Prince John is trying to take over the throne. He carries out a coup in Richard's absence. So Robin and Marion, who's the cousin of Richard the Lionheart in the film, they're trying to save the throne for the rightful King Richard. So the, the King Richard and Prince John thing is right there. Something we can probably discuss later, whether the timing of 1194 is right for the Robin Hood legend is a different matter. That comes through from, again, from the John Major's The Scottish Chronicler in the early 16th century, saying about this is when it, these events took place. But that doesn't hold historical reasoning for a number of um, arguments. On the case of Sheriff of Nottingham, the point about the Sheriff of Nottingham was that there was no Sheriff of Nottingham until 1450, which is three centuries after when the film takes place. At the time, there was a High Sheriff of Nottinghamshire and Derbyshire, but not an actual Sheriff of Nottingham. So that kind of miss is a anachronistic aspect of the film. And the Russell Crowe film does a similar thing, doesn't it, if you've seen it? It places this with Richard been away and Prince John trying to take over the throne. So that element is accurate if you want to place Robin Hood in that time, but it's a, as I say, it's a different matter whether Robin Hood should be placed as early as the 1190s. Again, this is something that comes from basically a chronicle from the Tudor period in the early 16th century. It sounds like they're kind of mixing and matching a lot of different timelines from history. Yes, absolutely. And I have no problem with that, really, because remember, Robin Hood is an entertainment, and the stories, as they developed over the centuries, were adapted for their own time and for different audiences to make them relevant and fresh. So in the film, they're changing things around, definitely, yes. Interesting. Now, one of the things that really kind of struck me as I was watching this version of the story uh, in Prince of Thieves was (laughs) Robin Hood's hideout in Sherwood Forest didn't really seem like much of a hideout at all. (laughs) It it looked a lot like a village, like you have permanent looking homes and the elaborate array of bridges that were spanning trees go from building to building. It must have taken quite some time to to put together. And we, you know, we see this huge party when Marion comes to visit Robin Hood for the first time. There's this huge, you know, fires and dancing and festivities. And it's like the exact opposite of what I would expect 
at a hideout, right? You're trying to hide out and yet they're having this huge party. <laughs> what of that, or is there anything we know about outlaws in Sherwood Forest hiding out? I'm just curious how close to reality a hideout like we see in the movie would be. This is a point I raised in my book, and I'm glad you've raised it because it's not very um, secretive, is it? That's the whole point. <laughs> And you say about this massive camp, when the Celts attack their camp, it becomes all very Tarzan-y, doesn't it? Robin Hood swinging around on ropes all over the place. Um, well, there's a number of problems, and you, you've picked up on a couple of them. The smoke from the fires would be seen. You know, imagine cooking all that venison that they've uh, stolen. You know, all those fires are going to be seen. Also, in winter, the foliage isn't going to be there, is it? Yeah, true. So that's going to expose them. Now, in... The original jest of Robin Hood, they do talk at one point of Robin Hood going to his house in the forest, which makes it sound obviously like a very fixed point. But there are problems with the actual location of Nottingham Shard, you know, the, the legends being automatically associated there. But Robin would not have had, and his man, or any outlaw, would not have had one central camp because it would be too easily discovered. Um, the other factor is in the early 13th century, Sherwood Forest, even though it's much larger than it is today, was simply too small to hide a large band of outlaws. The whole forest could be traversed in one day. So that's not a large area. And the, the jest always talks about there being 140 men in his, his band of outlaws. So they're not going to be able to hide very easily. And also thinking about it as well, on a practical level, if you're a robber, and you've basically set up somewhere in the forest where you're going to attack people all the time. People are going to avoid it. And if you're going to use the same places to attack people, the authorities are going to be able to find you easily as well. So it doesn't make sense for there to be one point. I understand for creative purposes and that it showed being so iconic that they need to have a camp there. But if you compare something like the movements of Jesse James in the 19th century, he travelled across enormous amounts of territory to avoid capture which he needed to do. So for Robin Hood and his men to be in the one place, they'd be sitting ducks, basically. So they, and they couldn't hide very well. So yeah, it, it, that doesn't hold. It's an artistic license on the part of the filmmakers. Yeah, well, and I didn't even mention this, but one part that really kind of stuck with me again was while I was watching the movie was, you know, there's this hideout and then the, the servant, Duncan, who has been blinded, <laughs> he manages to find this hideout somehow. I mean, I guess it's his horse that really finds it. But this whole time, it's like, wait a minute, this blind servant, basically his horse leads him to the hideout, but the sheriff can't find it? <laughs> like, they, they, have to, they have to follow him? Yes, with his army of men, I, exactly. R rather like Duncan, we have to turn a blind eye to these things in the film. <laughs> I love that. That's great. <laughs> now, another key plot point, and this is, I kind of talked about this briefly when I mentioned Marion coming to the camp, but just the whole relationship between Robin of Loxley and Maid Marion. Is there any truth to the relationship that we see between those two? In the earliest stories, and I always go back to the earliest texts in 1450 and 15th century, because after that, they're just literary reinterpretations. And Maid Marion does not appear in any of the earliest tales. She does not appear until about 1508, 1509 in the literature. So there, there are only three original merry men from the first stories, and that's Little John, Will Scarlet, and Much of the Medicine. Maid Marin, as it says, I say, appears in 1508-9. And this may have something to possibly to do with the popularity of the May Games Festival, the May Day celebrations, um, the, you know, connected to the forest and the like. 
And in villages all around England, when May Day was celebrated, it became the custom for Robin Hood, quotation marks, to be celebrated or crowned the King of Misrule, and for Maid Marian to be crowned the Queen of Misrule. So the two tend to come together in those May games. And it's like many of the later characters, it's very possible that Maid Marian had her own tradition of her own separate stories before Robin Hood. So you might have these stories about Robin Hood and you might have these stories about, about Maid Marian and then they come together. Oh, like completely, she would have almost completely separate stories that then over time kind of merge together through the story. Is that what you're saying? Yes, it's very possible. And it's very possible that Little John did too, because in, in the original stories, Little John is as main a character as Robin Hood is actually. He's as much a hero as Robin Hood. Um, and Friar Tuck possibly has his own tradition as well. In my book, I liken it to the Avengers. You know, Avengers Assemble, this is 1963, where you have people like Thor and the Hulk come together, the four of them come together, join forces. They've all had their separate story tradition before that. Or the, the Justice League of Superman, Batman, and the like from DC Comics, where these own individual characters have their own stories and then they're brought together to form a new supergroup, as it were, of collect collective characters. That's exactly what I was, I was thinking of. You know, I mean, of course, today we have all these superheroes that, that come together, so we're very familiar with that. I like that you use that example there to pull them all together. Yes, and I, I think that's what is basically happening here. You have popular characters uh, and then you make them more popular by bringing all of them together and see how they interact. Uh, so that seems to be what's happened here. So what we're seeing today, the, the movie franchise or DC Comics or Marvel Comics or whatever, it's a centuries-old tradition, basically. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally. Now, there were some characters in Prince of Thieves that I don't remember seeing in other Robin Hood movies. And one of them in particular was Mortiana, who was a witch. And I don't really remember much in other Robin Hood stories having this evidence of witchcraft and devil worship that like we, like I mentioned earlier, uh, one of the things that supposedly Robin's father was accused of devil worship, and that was kind of the excuse that they had for taking over his land. Was there any evidence of this witchcraft and devil worship angle that we see in Prince of Thieves? No. The Middle Ages were very, very superstitious, which is why we have the idea of Sherwood Forest, that soldiers not entering Sherwood Forest for the ghosts and the like. But the idea of devil worship... And that it could be used. I mean, in the 15th century, a famous noble lady was accused of witchcraft and was prosecuted for it. So it's there. There are elements because the church is brought in and the church comes out badly in the film, as it does in the original Robin Hood stories. There's an element of heresy, which I picked up on, as well as the devil worship. So heretical subjects. And at this time, there wasn't any notable heresy in England. There was a small outbreak of it in the 1160s, a very small outbreak, uh, and it was stamped out thoroughly because it, England, the centralized power, and it was able to do that. And these heretics at that time were, we think, early versions of the Cathar heretics that were persecuted in the Albigensian Crusade, but it's brought in again, it's, it's dramatic license. There's no real element of it. What's actually quite interesting, and now you've raised the point I'm just thinking, is that other 
medieval outlaw stories of the time and around the time do have an awful lot of fantastical elements like super human beings, supernatural creatures and witchcraft and the like. They do have elements in them. But the actual Robin Hood stories are quite different in that they have none of that at all. Interesting. So actually, it's the opposite in the Robin Hood stories, whereas other medieval outlaw stories did contain these things. Um, Robin Hood didn't. Interesting. That's almost the opposite of, again, going back to the superhero stories we're used to now. They're just filled with those. I'm curious, I guess, just to kind of throw throw another one out there. For some of those other stories that do have the more supernatural elements to them, are they also stories of collected heroes like the stories of Robin Hood? Again, this is an interesting point and one that fascinates me, and I write about it in the book. These other characters of these outlaws are, for the most part, based on real people. And then they take these real people and then they put them in fantastical situations. Um, Not that I've ever seen it, but I think it was some film called Lincoln Vampire Killer or something like that. Oh, yes, I've seen that. (laughs) Yeah, well, uh, so I I can only imagine what that's about. It's in the title. It's exactly what it's about. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly so. And that's what they do with these other real-life characters like Harold the Wake or Eustace the Monk. In fact, in Eustace the Monk, who is a fantastically interesting character, He's reported as going off devil worshipping and all the rest of it. But he was a real-life character, and that's the point. But in Robin Hood, there's none of those mystical elements at all. It's much more down-to-earth and probable. And in fact, the main storyline in the first original Robin Hood story, just of Robin Hood, is quite a dull tale about money lending and about paying back money. These other tales and other Robin Hood legends and stories get morphed into the overall tale. So it's really like a collection of tale. So, yeah, the Robin Hood is actually the opposite of that. So it's an interesting point. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. Something else I wanted to ask you about is a, a concept that we really see very prominently in Prince of Thieves, and it is in some of the other stories as well. And that is uh, centered around Christian Slater's character in the movie, Will Scarlet. Throughout the entire movie, he's never really fond of Robin, who kind of joins the band of outlaws later. But then after we see the sheriff of Nottingham capture Will Scarlet, he agrees to spy for the sheriff and lure Robin into a trap. Did any of Robin Hood's men betray him like this, like we see in the movie? No, not in the original stories. Uh, Will Scarlet is a brave and loyal uh, follower of Robin, but um, he, he doesn't have a speaking part, but he still acts bravely. Interestingly, though, the tale ends with, we'll come back to this, I think, um, perhaps a bit later, uh, Robin's death. He's portrayed by a female cousin of his, his, and that leads to his actual death, which we don't see in the film. Yeah, that's, that's, not, that's definitely not in this version of the movie. In fact, I don't really remember it in many of the other film adaptations of the story. In fact, I don't really remember much of Robin Hood having a family. Usually it's he's on his own now, and that's part of the reason why he's turned. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. In the Robin and Marion film, Sean Connery is playing Robin Hood. They do they have a, their own take on the death scene, but it doesn't normally appear in the films because basically most Robin Hood films are good triumphing over evil and feel-good films, aren't they? Yeah, another another common trope that I see in a lot of Robin Hood movies I want to ask about is Robin Hood always comes to the rescue and he always comes to the rescue of there's this consistent theme and that's why I'm, I'm curious about it because it's a theme that I see in a lot of the Robin Hood movies uh, as well as in Prince of Thieves Robin Hood comes to the rescue of people right before they're hanged 
And in doing so, he shoots the rope. Yes. Right. And in this case, it's uh, little John's son, Wolf, who's being hanged. But in other versions of the story and other film adaptations, it's other people being hanged. But it's almost always somebody being hanged for something and he comes and shoots the rope. How accurate is the idea that Robin Hood rescues people from execution? In the original stories, it's there. It's quite a feature of the original story. So he goes and, and rescues, not necessarily from the gallows, but from prisons in Nottingham. So it's very, very close to it. And Robin himself is rescued as well from the prison at Nottingham uh, by little John and some others in the early stories. Obviously, again, in the film, they're making it as exciting as possible at the last possible moment. But it's also a feature in other medieval outlaw tales as well, the last minute's rescue of comrades from the gallows. In terms of public executions at the time, some executions were stopped when the public protested about them, started chanting or shouting to let the, the condemned man go. And the authorities might actually release a prisoner, a condemned prisoner, for fear of uh, a breakdown in authorities. And we even have some tr- true life examples of um, as one case where two hangmen in 1293 in England actually helped the man on the gallows to escape. So the actual hangmen involved enabled the person to escape. The sad irony of that story is that the two hangmen were themselves later caught and hung themselves. So that didn't end, that didn't end well for them. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's not one of those feel-good stories. <laughs> no, no. So that's not in the, the, the original, no, but that's a true, life, you know, a true life comparison. So yes, it's very much there in the stories. And, but, and, and of course, we would expect it to be in a way because it's high drama. And the Robin Hood stories are entertainment. They're designed as entertainment. So... They want to up the excitement factor quite often. You put it that way. That makes perfect sense. Something along those lines in Prince of Thieves in particular, because I thought that movie was a little bit different than some of the other Robin Hood films that I've seen in that in Prince of Thieves, we don't see a lot of his marksmanship being put on display until he starts that rescue and he shoots the rope, of course. But in other ones, we've seen like where Robin Hood splits an arrow in half. And then, of course, in this one, we do end up seeing him shoot a rope. So we get the idea that he's great marksmanship. There was a a quote that from the movie that I believe it was Will Scarlet, where Robin tells Will that there's something that's too dangerous for him. him, And Will replies, well, so is your aim with the idea that maybe Robin Hood is not that great of a marksman in this version of it. But what do we know about Robin Hood's archery skills? The original stories are jam-packed with archery competitions. Any time they want an excuse to go to a place, they'll arrange for there to be an archery competition. And then Robin shows his prowess at the uh, competition. And he is a crack marksman with the bow. But the film catches this element of it because the story also shows when Robin misses, which he does in a couple of times. And when he does so, there's a kind of lot of banter and backslapping and making fun of him and that type of thing because he's actually missed something. So the skill of Robin and his men, especially Little John, is very much there in the stories. And you know, this, this isn't entirely surprising. The training of men at that time, the laws of the land, like the size of arms in the 12th century of the Statue of Winchester in the late 13th century, said men had to be equipped with bows and had to practice the bow. So that's not unusual. No, in the film, I think at one point he does actually split an arrow um, in the tree. And this is in the the original stories, this is called splitting the wand when they have to hit a target and split it. And he does that a number of times. He splits a wand three times. 
Now, um, close your ears, maybe for this bit, but one historian has said that has a phallic meaning, but we don't want to dwell on that <laughs> because it doesn't bear thinking about. But if I may read you a, a short extract from uh, Robin Hood on this fact, because in, in his last days when he's away from Sherwood Forest and he's missing the forest, the jest says, Alas, said the good Robin, my wealth is all gone away. I used to be a good archer, solid and also strong. I was reckoned the best archer that was in Mary Ingalong. So he knew it, and everyone else knew it, that he was the top man with the bow. But he was human, and he could miss. That sounds painful. <laughs> You're still dwelling on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> so towards the end of the movie... We see Robin's band of outlaws rescue the villagers from being executed, as I mentioned. And then we, uh, Robin and Azim rescue Marion before her marriage to the sheriff, basically before the sheriff rapes her. After this, there's a sword fight between the sheriff and Robin. That's kind of the big killing off the big bad guy. Robin kills the sheriff. And then Azim saves Robin's life by killing the witch I mentioned earlier. It's kind of the final fulfillment that we've seen throughout the entire movie of Azim vowing to save Robin's life. At some point. And then Robin and, and Marion are about to get married in Sherwood Forest. And that's when we see Sean Connery's version of King Richard show up and insist on giving Marion away. And it kind of ends happily ever after. But how does this compare to the way Robin's story really ended? It ends with his death at an older age. And what happens is that King Richard arrives and he's so impressed by, well, it actually. King Richard in the film, but in the original dress, it's, some, it's a King Edward. We don't know which King Edward it's meant to be. Actually, that's probably irrelevant because they'll just use the king's name of the times, it's most likely. So that could be Edward II, Edward I, or Edward IV, perhaps. That comes to the whole century. Anyway, Robin and his men go off to join the king's service. But Robin is unhappy. He misses Sherwood very much, and he laments about the forest. In fact, he says... Alas, then said the good Robin, alas, well away, if I dwell longer with the king, my sorrow will me slay. So he wants to get back to the forest, and he breaks a promise to the king. He says, can I go back to Sherwood Forest, please, for a week? And the king allows that, but tells him he must come back. But then he goes there and stays for years, then, in Sherwood Forest. And at one point, then, in later life, the story ends quite, quite abruptly. There's this big gap. We don't hear about what he gets up to in Sherwood Forest when he returns. We just hear about he goes to Kirkley's Abbey, which the ruins of the still stats today, and he goes there to have his blood let there for health reasons. But he is tricked by his cousin, who happens to be the prioress of Kirkley's. We don't know whether she bled him too much. For reasons which aren't made clear in the story, uh, she and her lover, Roger of Doncaster, betray him and he dies. And that's the end of the story in Robin Hood. So we have this, the stories and all the adventures of Robin Hood. Then he goes away for years with the king, and then he returns to, we, we don't know much about what happens there, except for he's missing children. He comes back to the forest, and he dies some years later. Hmm. So, yeah, it seems like it almost was a uh, happily ever after, at least as far as this part of the story is concerned. Yes, because he, he got back to his natural element. He returned to his natural element where he felt vibrant and alive. So, yeah, it's a full life then. I'm curious because we've been talking about Prince of Thieves, but obviously there are a lot of other Robin Hood movies out there. Do you have one that you think does the best job of portraying the legend of Robin Hood? Yes, I do. I mentioned it earlier, um, and I'm smiling as I say, because it's one of my favorite films anyway, regardless of it would be Robin Hood. And that's Robin and Marion from 1976. 
that's with an older Robin Hood, Sean Connery, and Maid Marian, played by Audrey Hepburn. It's far more realistic. It catches the humour, it catches the adventure, but not in such an over-the-top action way. The action scenes are more believable. And it's more human. It's a, it's, it's a real human story. And I think in that, it is um, a more engaging film. So I'm very fond of that film. But I also quite like a, a 1984 film called The Zany Adventures of Robin Hood. I don't think I've seen that one. That's a funny one. And that's got the best medieval joke I've ever heard in it. And it's one I show to my students when we start Robin Hood in the second semester. I always show a clip from that, um, that film. And of course, a lot of Robin Hood is humorous. The original stories, it's a lot of knockabout humor. So that captures that element of it. So they're my two. How about on the other side of it? Which Robin Hood movie would you say is the uh, does the worst job of portraying the legend? It's easy to be very biased because as a boy, you grow up with Robin Hood films you enjoy. I wasn't very fond of the last film at all, the one from 2018. Mm, yeah, that was very over the top. It's very over the top. It's more steampunk than history, I think. Uh, yes, it was, as you say, over the top. And that detracted from it, I think. But as I said, to be fair, most films of Robin Hood, and indeed the Robin Hood stories themselves, would change to reflect the age. So I suppose this one reflects um, the early 20th, 21st century audience, perhaps what they're after. So I, I don't criticize it for that. I, I just didn't enjoy it, really. That makes sense. Now, would there be anything, I guess, in Prince of Thieves, but really in, in any of them, are there legends that you really wish that they had included? that are not included in some of the film adaptations? Well, again, as I said earlier, I'm off the clock as an historian when I'm watching these films, um, so I don't mind that side. But it would be interesting to see a film which captured more the actual brutality of the tales. And this comes as quite a shock to students, for example, and for others who read the tales for the first time, because the band of outlaws can be quite vicious. And at one point, Little John and much of the Miller's son, they kill a monk and actually behead a boy monk, a novice. So there's an element of brutality which medieval audiences love. They love these tales of chansons de geste where the, the knights are fighting each other and cleaving each other in half with broadswords and the like. Just like people like violence in films today. So I think the brutal element might come across more strongly in some films or at all. Yeah, I imagine that that's going to be tough to balance with the, the humor of it all. Yeah, and, and it's quite quite shocking and, and difficult to follow in, in the stories because this is in the original stories. They are like this. In one minute, there's uh, something shocking. And, and the audience are even expected to laugh at something that's shocking and not supposed to be outraged by it necessarily. And if he's a criminal, which he was in that sense, then they're committing crimes for a reason. And sometimes it's for good reasons, is Robin Hood. But um, they're not going to be perfect heroes, I don't think. Yeah. Well, that leads me into something I was, I was curious about that I don't think they mentioned it in Prince of Thieves, but it's something that's in a lot of other Robin Hood stories. And that is just the term Robin Hood and his merry men, which is in the name. It just makes you think, oh, they're happy, happy go lucky uh, band of folks. Um, but as outlaws, and if it's going to be a lot more brutal, then that's not necessarily the case. But where did the term merry men and where did, where did that kind of come up? The actual term Merry Men, it was interesting. I can't recall it being in the original tales of Robin Hood. They tend to be referred to as outlaws of the forest. But the term Merry England does appear in the original stories. So perhaps it comes from that. It, I, I don't think it means reading too much into it in the sense of the modern term of Merry and Happy. It's probably more lively or perhaps mischievous in that sense. Um, but the term Merry England is very much there in the original text. 
Okay, yeah, because when, when I hear that, I think they're just having these parties out in the forest and, they're, you know, merry men, they're having a lot of fun out there. And that's always the song I get played before my interviews, um, Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the Glen, you know, Robin Hood, Robin Hood and his merry men. That's a familiar one. Yes. <laughs> What's something from the Robin Hood legend that for those of us who mostly know Robin Hood through movies, but what's something that would be very surprising for those to find out about the, the real story, the real legend? That we don't know he ever existed. He's this character that is deemed to be legendary and mythical. But as I argue in a book, and it's not a radical argument in a way because it makes sense, um, I do believe that the stories are based on a real-life character. Earlier I mentioned other medieval outlaws who had tales told about them who are real people. So we have Herod the Wake, Eustace the Monk, Fulk Fitzwarren, and others, real people, and then brought into these tales. So I think the stories may well have been inspired by a real-life character, but someone actually called Robin Hood is a different matter. And in fact, the name Robin Hood doesn't necessarily mean anything at all because... It was a kind of a John Doe name for criminals. It's a kind of catch-all name. So we have loads and loads of people called Robin Hood in the criminal records. And it, it's used as a, an alias or a nickname for criminals in the Middle Ages. Interesting. So it, it's more of a, not necessarily just one person then, but just a, a title of sorts. A, a John Doe is a great way to phrase that. Of We don't really know who this is, probably because they're an outlaw. So just kind of attribute it to Robin Hood. Is that how that would work? Yes, and in Britain, it's like um, Robin Hood would be the equivalent of calling an electrician Sparks or a policeman PC Plod or something like that. And it's that, a name that is associated with your career or your activity or your job profession. So, yeah, the, the name doesn't get us anywhere at all. Would you equate Robin Hood then, the, the character of Robin Hood, if it's kind of we're not really sure that he existed to something along the lines of a King Arthur, where, again, we're not really sure if this was a real person. It might have been based on somebody, but perhaps not, perhaps based on multiple people, legends grown over the millennia. Yes, I think that's a good comparison to make. It's a similar sort of heroic legend as well. But in the book, I do name a chap from the 13th century who we have chronicle records. We know existed. He's in chronicle records and he's in official records. And he was, he led a band of 1,000 bowmen in the forest and he was fighting against the people who were trying to overtake the throne of England. And this is all very real. The point about, which I explain in the book, is that it's perfectly timed for the legend. Now, the legend of Robin Hood restarted taking off in the 13th century. So this bowman and leader of men in the forest in the early 13th century called William of Kenshin or Willikin of the Wild was a legendary figure in his own lifetime and wasn't a knight. He was an ordinary yeomanry character. And his renown was such that even the French chronicles wrote about him. So his adventures and exploits would seem similar. And I should say that when I started off to, to write the Robin Hood book, I never meant to write anything about Robin Hood, but I was researching something which historians have overlooked, which is the forgotten invasion of England in 1216. And it is when writing that book, I came across this character, I say, was a bowman, he's in the forest with his band of archers, um, he fought against tyranny, he was both a hero and an outlaw, because the French invaded uh, and made him an outlaw, but to the English he was a hero because he's fighting the French. And it's remarkable how soon after this Robin Hood legend takes off in England. So the timing works very well for that. Interesting. Well, leading right into that, because since you mentioned your book, I know we've we've covered a lot of 
the truths and legends and things about Robin Hood, but I know there's going to be a lot more that we will never be able to cover on a single episode. But fortunately, there is your book, Robin Hood, A True Legend. Can you share a bit about your book, where someone listening to this can pick it up and where they can find out more about your work? Okay, sure. The book can get an Amazon in the paperback or a Kindle. What I do, and it's a short book, because what I don't do in a book, which most books do, is to take the Robin Hood legend from those original stories in the 15th century and then say what they're like in the 16th century, the 17th century, and 18th century, because that's all fiction. I'm really interested, and I concentrate on the historicity of the legend. So I go take that 15th century legends as a starting point, and then I move backwards in time to see where the original story lies. So it's very much a historical approach. It's not a folklore approach or a literary approach. It's very much an historical approach, which I take in it, uh, which is what interests me. So that's in this short book, Robin Hood, A True Legend. But the events around this other character, William of Kensham, as a possible real-life character, are also discussed in another book of mine, which is the subject of my PhD, and that's uh, called Blood Cries of Fire, The Magna Carta War and the Invasion of England, 1215 to 1217. And that gives the whole context of where, why the stories might originate in this time as well. I love that approach to it being a lot more historical because there are so many legends and, you know, it, it's nice to to focus on, on the historical side of it, which is a refreshing take. Like I said, I wasn't looking for him. I, it was while carrying out historical research that I was led to him. For, Hang on a minute. This sounds a bit familiar. And, and whereas a lot of the approaches are from folklore historians or literary historians and the like, I come to this with an, an original angle, which hasn't been discussed before. But when the research was first published, it received global attention and some of it misinterpreted my views, which is part of the problem with a lot of news outlets and media. But nonetheless, it's an original story. And I've had plenty of time to think about it. And I'm still convinced that if there was to be one real-life character that inspired Robin Hood, then this chap, William of Kensham, is by far and away the closest, is much closer than any other real-life characters that have been put forward before. Wow. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Sean, coming on to chat about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Thank you. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Dr. Sean McGlynn once again for coming on the show. If you want to learn more about the real history behind the legend of Robin Hood, go pick up his book called Robin Hood, A True Legend. I'll make sure to add a link to that book and more of Dr. McGlynn's work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number 1. Robin Hood's hideout was not anything like what we see in the movie. Number 2. The legends of Robin Hood were more brutal than a lot of the movie adaptations. Number 3. We know who the real person was who inspired Robin Hood. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number 2. That is true. As we learned, some of the legends of Robin Hood were quite a bit more brutal than the stories we see on the big screen. That brings us to number one. That is also true. Even though the movie makes it seem like Robin Hood and his merry men have built what looks like a village filled with buildings and elaborate structures, as Sean pointed out, 
There's quite a few holes in that sort of a depiction of an outlaw's hiding place. That means the lie is number three. Even though Sean made the case in his book for someone that he thinks might have been the inspiration behind the real Robin Hood, as he pointed out, at the end of the day, we just don't know if there really was a Robin Hood. And that brings us to an end of this episode. But before we go, there is one last thing that I like to do. Now, this is something that's relatively new. If you've listened to the last few episodes, you might have heard, but I've never really heard a podcast share the statistics for each episode. And I'm a big fan of being as open as possible. So I figure, why not? Maybe if you find out how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, then maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free a little bit more because they all take time. With that said, here are the final stats for the creation of this episode. Today's episode took a total of 24 hours to create and cost $16.89 in out-of-pocket expenses. It's probably worth pointing out, though, that that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. It does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter that we talked about, nor does it include any of my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast and hosting costs, that's a recurring cost for both the podcast, and then there's also recurring costs for based on a true story podcast.com, the domain, the hosting, uh, a lot of the software that's used on there, the plugins and things, those are all recurring costs, and that does not that's not included in the out-of-pocket expenses for this one episode. And also doesn't include any of the time outside of writing, researching, and producing this one single episode. For example, the website that I just talked about, it takes time to maintain that. Uh, All the social media and all that kind of stuff, it does not include any of that time. That time and cost is just for the production of this one episode. My time and cost for producing this one episode. Don't forget you can help keep Based on a True Story ad-free and independent by supporting the podcast over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. As a way of saying thank you, you'll get access to hours of exclusive bonus content on the producer's feed. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to the story, hop on to the Based on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre. That's D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Now, if social media isn't your thing, don't worry. You can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. If you're not able to support the show monetarily, no problem at all. I don't want you to feel pressured to do that. I'm so happy that you've given me some of your precious time for the last hour or so. I really hope you've enjoyed this time together as much as I have. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.